Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Oh, hi, and thanks for listening to this very special episode of Basic Folk. Today, we're pleased to introduce our listeners to one of our favorite podcasts by sharing an episode in our feed. American Songcatcher with Nicholas Edward Williams is an audio documentary style podcast hosted by Nicholas, who is a folk musician and music history enthusiast. So here's how it goes. Each episode has five stories, starting with one traditional song's journey to America, followed by stories of four musicians and American roots, starting with legends of the past, kind of like going all the way up to modern artists of the day. You'll hear the stories behind songs of immigrants from the British Isles and Europe who brought their tunes into the Appalachian Mountains to songs of the South, gospel, bluegrass, ragtime, blues, old-time country, and the folk music derived from it all. This podcast goes behind the curtains of legends and shines a light on integral artists who have influenced generations, people like Bessie Smith, Olabel Reed, Odetta, and Dave Van Ronk. I am shocked that Nicholas doesn't have a journalism background. His approach is warm, insightful. He has the true spirit of a detective uncovering the mysteries of these songs and musicians. This is just such a wonderful listen and it will make you smarter. That's the best part about it. He's so good at what he does. I'm so happy to present American Songcatcher in the Basic Folk feed. We're going to check out Season 2, Episode 2 of American Songcatcher. And Nicholas has the following lineup. We'll learn about the traditional song Little Liza Jane, as well as Doc Boggs, Snooks Eaglin, Nina Simone, and leading up with Billy Strings. So, hope you enjoy American Songcatcher with Nicholas Edward Williams. You're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk musician Nicholas Edward Williams. On the ships of merchant sailing vessels in the seas surrounding the British Isles and Western Europe, maritime work songs accompanied the rhythmic labor of those aboard, a tradition that could be traced back to the first ships developed around 3000 BCE near modern-day Taiwan and ancient Egypt. Between 1600 and 1900, a period known as the European Age of Sail particularly, fully rigged ships required merchantmen for trade, and even more sailors and strict scheduling to support the cannons on warships that emerged during the 16th century. In each of these respects, 
songs were customary to the task at hand. As the writer William Saunders put it in his book, Sailor Songs and Songs of the Sea in 1928, how the sea shanty originated is not difficult to discover. It has undoubtedly grown out of the natural inclination one feels in hauling or in otherwise performing any rhythmical operation to keep time with one's voice, feet, or hands in parallel rhythmical sound. The term we know today as sea shanties was developed in the mid-1800s as shanty, with a ch, though it's often misspelled as sh. The reason we use sea before shanty today is strictly to reference the origin story. Only seagoing work songs were called shanties back then. Some believe the term derives from the French word chanter, meaning to sing, while others have linked it to the English word chant. The hallmark of the shanty song is the use of call and response, where a soloist would shout and the rest of the workers would echo the same line in unison. The soloist was called the shanty man and often had a colorful tone and speech, were quick-witted, and had a strong voice to carry over the other men. Shanties, like other historical work songs, were sung without any instrumental accompaniment and were only sung in work-based environments, functioning to both synchronize and optimize labor while raising the group morale. Sheets me hearties, water the deck with brine, bend to the oars, you lousy whores, none is bigger than mine. When many countries were switching to steam-powered ships and using mechanized systems on board at the end of the 19th century, shanties no longer served a practical function at sea. During the first half of the 20th century, the story of the shanty was carried and preserved by veteran sailors and folklorist song collectors, and for the most part, they transferred to land, though some fishermen still use shanty songs on small rigs with small crews. Shanty songs were documented while workers manually loaded cotton onto ships in the ports of the southern United States, and they became part of the repertoire in minstrel music, popular marches, land-based folk songs, and plantations, where similar work songs had already been in full swing for a few centuries. During the 1920s especially, shanty songs were taken in by the commercial music industry, popular literature, and other media, where its original forms were transformed for land-based leisure activity and entertainment. This began to distort the view and culture surrounding sea shanty life and unconsciously changed the narrative for generations to come. Coinciding with white European and British Isles sailors, shanty songs have been documented all over the world. One example that you're hearing now is Bear Away Yankees, Bear Away Boy, a rowing and work song from the West Indies dating back to the early 1800s, aimed at the British who didn't want to fish but expected to share the spoils of the labor. Another is Grog Time O'Day, a Caribbean rowing and work song, also from the early 1800s, that's true form has been lost today. After the British Royal Navy landed in Barbados and captured Jamaica, they became fascinated with rum and a drink called grog. The song was also documented as sung by black dock workers loading steamboats in New Orleans in 1841. Songs like these with black roots began to exchange hands with non-blacks in the same time period. Some of these workers were from Britain and Ireland, working the transatlantic cotton trade and avoiding the colder seasons back home for a well-paid labor job known as cotton screwing. One Euro-American in 1845, while working a job in New Orleans, wrote that, With the aid of a set of jack screws and a ditty, we would stow away huge bales of cotton, singing all the while. The song enlivened the gang, and seemed to make the work much easier. Oh, 
One of New Orleans' most celebrated standards today, especially in traditional New Orleans jazz, is a song called Little Liza Jane, also known as Liza Jane. Dating back at least to the 1910s in its modern form, it's been described as a southern dialect song, though musicologists have been able to trace it to black slave sailors that turned into dock workers and plantation workers around the port in New Orleans as a shanty work song. New Orleans may actually have been where the song took shape in the second half of the 1800s, though its first publications and recordings stretched to opposite ends of the country. Little Liza Jane was first published in 1916 in San Francisco and featured in a Broadway show called Come Out of the Kitchen the same year. The first recording of the song, which you're hearing right now, was in New York City in 1917 by the Earl Fuller's Jazz Band for Victor Records, which sold well enough to make it an early jazz standard. The second recording came from Columbia Records in 1918, performed by Harry C. Brown on vocals and banjo that also established the song among old-time and early country music lovers. In the book Negro Folk Songs by Natalie Curtis Berlin, published in 1918, describes a version of the song that also had a dancing game. For the Liza Jane dance, couples would dance in a circle around an extra man in the middle. The extra man would then steal partners with one of the couples, and the odd men out would go into the center and do a solo dance, then cut in on another couple, and the process would repeat. He worked in the, in the field. He worked in, in, in the field a while, but he played music in slavery time. Had him and old man Milton Bracer for the fiddle player. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any of the tunes he played to you? Yeah, I remember practically all of them. All of them is just old thing about can't get the saddle on the old gray mule and little Liza Jane. Play us one of them. Hey, Liza, little Liza Jane. Oh, Liza, little Liza Jane. Steal that guy with the red dress on, little Liza Jane. Don't you stop what shows you want, little Liza Jane. Sam Chapman, who you may remember from season one, episode six, as a member of the Mississippi Sheiks, explained in a 1978 interview that his father, a musician on plantations, would sing the song while slaves were picking cotton in the fields to help them pass the time, which would have been between the late 1800s and the turn of the century. Some musicologists have pointed out a few similarities between Liza Jane and Stephen Foster's standard from 1850, Camp Town Races. Additionally, the name Liza Jane was a standard name for female characters in minstrel shows throughout the 1800s. But despite its array of origin stories, one place has claimed this song above all else, and that's the Big Easy, New Orleans. Today, Little Liza Jane is a standard that wears many hats, not only in traditional New Orleans brass bands, but also in jazz, blues, old time, folk music, pop, soul, country, funk, bluegrass, and rock and roll. It's a song you don't forget once you hear it, making it one of the most recognized songs in the world. A forthcoming multimedia documentary titled Little Liza Jane, a movie about a song, beautifully states, passing back and forth between black and white musicians, the song and its many variations have become emblematic of survival and transcendence. Little Liza Jane can teach us all about the magnificence of the human connection. It's been recorded by Bob Willis and his Texas Playboys, that's Domino, Lead Belly, David Bowie, Little Richard, Bing Crosby, Nina Simone, The Weavers, The Band, Allison Krauss and Union Station, and Dr. John, just to name a few. Here's an old-time rendition of Little Liza Jane, inspired by a version I heard by the Irish group We Banjo 3. Mm -hmm. 
I don't give that you don't know Little Isaac Jane Way back east in Baltimore Little Isaac Jane Oh, little Isaac Little Isaac Jane Oh, little Isaac Liza Jane is good to me, little Liza Jane. Sweetest gal I've ever seen, little Liza Jane. Oh, little Liza, little Liza Jane. Oh, little Liza, little Liza Jane. She lives where those wildflowers grow, little Liza Jane. Bruce's round the kitchen door, little Liza Jane. Oh, Liza, little Liza Jane. Oh, Liza, little Liza Jane. However far now we may roam, little Liza Jane. Where she's at is home, sweet home, little Liza Jane. Listening to American Songcatcher. Born the youngest of ten in the coal mining town of Norton, Virginia, Moran Lee Boggs, better known as Doc Boggs, was born on February 7th, 1898. Nicknamed after the doctor who delivered him, Doc came into the world during a time of industrialization and rapid transition in a region that relied on subsistence farming. But by the time of Doc's birth, like many others, his father had sold off their farmland piece by piece to the coal company, in addition to becoming employed by the coal industry. The town could only afford to pay a teacher to come for three months out of the year for schooling, and Doc attended there before working the mines himself by age 12, earning seven cents an hour on a 10-hour workday. Many members of the Boggs family were musically gifted. Doc's father was a talented singer and taught him to use his voice, and several of Doc's siblings also sang and played banjo. In particular, he learned a foundation of banjo from his brother Roscoe, and even more from a traveling musician named Homer Crawford, who taught him different tunings and various songs. Although Doc was familiar early on with the traditional claw hammer or frailing style of banjo playing that was common in his family and in the mountains, Everything changed when he made a discovery by sneaking over to the nearby African-American coal camps at night. That's when he first saw string bands perform and got his first glimpse of someone playing a unique picking pattern, plucking out solo notes on the banjo to an old folk song called Turkey in the Straw. By 1918, Doc was performing more and more and began taking music more seriously. He started following around black musicians, such as guitarist Go Lightning, waiting to watch him busk for change. 
he got married to Sarah Stidham, a devout follower of the Pentecostal holiness faith, and was supplementing his wages from the coal company by playing at parties around southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky and running bootleg whiskey throughout the Cumberland Mountain Range. Tensions were high early on in their marriage. Sarah and her deeply religious family lamented the fact that Doc played an instrument associated with sin, and to boot, he played secular music and was moonshining on the side. Even harder for Sarah to accept was that both the music and bootlegging were helping the young couple make ends meet. One day in early 1927, while working a coal-cutting machine in Wise County, Virginia, Doc received news that the Brunswick Recording Company was having auditions for a recording contract at the nearby Norton Hotel. He was reluctant, assuming the area had plenty more talented people than him, but a friend convinced him to go. Of the 75 musicians who auditioned that day in the ballroom of the hotel, only three were chosen by Brunswick, one of which was Doc. Among those rejected was A.P. Carter, though later that year, he would go on to record at the Bristol Sessions that would launch the Carter family and others into country music stardom. In the spring of 1927, Doc bought a new suit and caught a train for his first trip out of the mountains to New York City. There, he recorded eight songs for Brunswick, including several traditional folk songs of unknown authorship, such as Sugar Baby, Country Blues, Reuben's Train, and Pretty Polly. Toward the end of the 1920s, his recordings had sold moderately well locally, and Doc was increasing performances at mining camps around southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky. In 1928, Doc was able to leave the back-breaking labor of the coal mines in exchange for a full-time music career. He bought himself a nicer banjo and formed Doc Boggs and his Cumberland Mountain Entertainers. The group made upwards of three dollars to $400 a week, the equivalent of over $6,000 in today's money, and he was becoming somewhat of a local celebrity. However, devout neighbors and his wife Sarah increasingly saw his lifestyle as sinful, especially since the mining camps were fraught with drunken brawls, in which Doc consistently had a hand in, and he would often come home bruised and battered. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless. And you think it's awful nice. You put your hand in your pocket and you ain't got the price. By the time Doc had his 1929 recording session in Chicago with Lonesome Ace Records, the Great Depression was making its way to the mountain people in the South. It stifled the sales of the 12 recordings that he made, and like many other hard-hit rural areas, the recession left very few venues able to afford musical entertainment, and even fewer folks to buy records. After an incident at a live radio audition for Atlanta's OK Records in 1930, where Doc froze up due to stage fright, things really slowed down. Though he was offered more auditions over the next three years, Doc wasn't able to scrounge up travel expenses. And by 1933, he finally gave in to Sarah's pleas to take up a less sinful and more stable lifestyle of working in the coal mines. He played occasionally for family and friends before ultimately pawning his banjo to a friend with the intention of buying it back and allegedly stopped playing banjo altogether for the next three decades. 
Doc would spend the majority of his life working in the coal mines, 45 years altogether. But even that job wouldn't prove stable enough, as his mining career ended abruptly in April 1954, when he was permanently laid off due to the increased mechanization of the coal industry. And adding insult to injury, he was unable to draw a pension, as he was six years too young to do so, so Doc and Sarah struggled to make a living over the next several years. The blowback of Doc's decision to stop playing music and being fired from the mines was that he dug deeper into running moonshine whiskey in the mountains, considered just as dangerous as our modern-day drug trade. From his many years of bootlegging, Doc battled with depression and alcohol dependency throughout his adult life, and despite becoming a deacon of his church in Kentucky in 1942, he struggled with his religious beliefs, likely due to pressures from Sarah and her family. Got no sugar baby now, got no honey baby now. In 1952, two of Doc's recordings from 30 years earlier, Sugar Baby and Country Blues, were featured on the mecca of Roots Music compilations, Harry Smith's Anthology of American Folk Music. It's unclear if Doc was aware of this, but about 10 years later, once the revival was in full swing, his music was rediscovered and revered. Doc was brought up to speed in 1963 by Mike Seeger, an ethnomusicologist and folklorist and founding member of the New Lost City Ramblers, as well as Pete Seeger's half-brother. Mike had come to the Appalachian Mountains to record the music and the stories of Appalachian folk artists and sought out to find Doc at his home in Virginia. Perhaps coincidentally, Doc had recently purchased a banjo and had been practicing for several months before Mike arrived. Just a few weeks later, Mike was able to get Doc on the bill for the American Folk Festival in Asheville, North Carolina, ending a nearly three-decade-long hiatus of performing in public. With Mike Seeger's help throughout the 1960s, Doc would go on to record three albums for Folkways Records and tour the country, performing for a much different audience than he was used to. The eager young generation was like nothing he'd seen, soaking up his mountain old time in clubs and folk music festivals, including 10,000 attendees at the Newport Folk Festival in 1966. Doc was in his late 60s and having a second career boost, receiving national acclaim among folk circles decades after his last recordings were made in 1930. He and Sarah split in his later years, and he resettled in Kentucky. After experiencing nearly seven years of musical success, Increasing health issues forced Doc to retire once more, before passing away on his 73rd birthday in 1971. Though his recordings didn't achieve mainstream success, Doc's unique and innovative style of banjo playing would leave an unforgettable mark on Appalachian and American music history. During his relatively short-lived career as a musician, Doc Boggs became renowned for blending the traditional structure of Anglo-American folk music with the upbeat, plucked-out melodies of African-American string musicians. Doc's protege, Jack Wright, 
whom he taught later in life, started the annual Doc Boggs Festival in 1968, still held annually in his hometown of Norton, Virginia, and now called the Doc Boggs and Kate Peters Sturgill Festival. I don't know where I picked this song up at. I love, love to give anybody credit for the song, but uh, I've known it for years. I've been playing the band for about 55 years, and, and uh, some of the songs I learned before I learned how to play a banjo. And uh, this is my brother Jim went into a restaurant one night To some other party we got into a fight Doc's haunting and wavering tenor voice would go on to influence countless artists throughout the 20th century and beyond, including Bob Dylan, Doc Watson, Ralph Stanley, and J.D. Crowe. Several of the 12 songs that Doc Boggs recorded in the 1920s would go on to become standards in Appalachian old-time music, including Reuben's Train, Pretty Polly, and O Death. The latter recording inspired fellow banjo player and Virginia native Ralph Stanley, who later won a Grammy for his a cappella rendition of O Death on the O Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack in 2000. Doc is currently having a third revival, 50 years after his death, as a new generation of banjo players seek to play the styles of America's pioneers once again, echoing Doc's distinctive lonesome sound that still lives in the mountains. This story was written by Ryan Eastrich. Here's a rendition of the traditional song, Wild Bill Jones, inspired by a combination of Doc Boggs' rendition and a recent arrangement done by J.P. Harris, first recorded in 1924. Yes, I went down for to take a little walk. It came from that wild Prison for twenty long years. This poor boy 
longing to be free. But while Bill Jones and that old long neck bottle You're listening to American Songcatcher. Well, I'm looking for a woman that'll work and set you down. In the southern epicenter of music culture, Ferd Eaglin Jr., better known as Snooks Eaglin, came into the world on January 21st, either in 1936 or 1937, in New Orleans. At just 19 months old, Snooks lost his sight after undergoing a risky operation to remove both a brain tumor and glaucoma, and he spent nearly two and a half years in the hospital afterwards in recovery and dealing with other ailments. Once he was able to come home, it didn't take long for his family to give him something to look forward to, a vital piece of New Orleans heritage, music. I'm a country boy down in New Orleans. Can't find nowhere to get no greasy dream. At five years old, Snooks was gifted a guitar by his father, Ferd Sr., who was a harmonica player. He taught himself how to play through a few phonograph records around the house and by listening to songs on the radio, which he was able to replicate rather quickly. Much like many blind guitarists and musicians of this era, Snooks honed in on other senses besides sight and began to develop his own style, mainly by picking with his thumbnail, which allowed him to play really fast. Another key to his early adeptness on guitar was that Ferd Sr. owned an acetate recording machine, and they could jam and make home recordings, then listen back to hear what transpired. His troublemaking led him to be called Snooks, after a boisterous and mischievous character named Baby Snooks that was on one of their favorite radio programs. Snooks, I'm reading the paper, and I'll appreciate it very much if you don't disturb me. Read me the funny. No! I want to read the market report. Snooks' guitar playing developed rapidly, and by age 10, he was singing and playing piano in Baptist churches around the area. In 1947, a talent contest with the local radio station WNOE popped up with $200 going to first prize. 11-year-old Snooks performed a hefty guitar rendition of 12th Street Rag, which he practiced incredibly hard to master. And not only did Snooks take home the purse, but now the whole city was aware of this young prodigy. Three years later, he dropped out of the school for the blind and became a full-time musician. Snooks got his first regular gig with a seven-piece horn group called the Flamingos, directed by a 13-year-old pianist named Alan Toussaint whose legendary career would induct him into the blues, rock and roll, Louisiana, and Songwriters Hall of Fame. The group was also Toussaint's first band, and they were one of New Orleans' most popular R&B groups, playing school dances, socials, and pleasure club events alongside the Hawkettes, headed by Art Neville, who would go on to form the funk group The Meters and the Neville Brothers. R&B, or rhythm and blues, got its name in the 1940s as an umbrella genre, encompassing boogie-woogie, African-American swing, jazz, and blues, replacing the term race music, which was used as a general marketing term for all African-American music between the 1920s and the 1940s. I go, 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 I go
By the time the Flamingos were up and running, Snooks was also making a name for himself by picking up side gigs, recording with Sugar Boy Crawford on his biggest record and the Mardi Gras classic Giacomo. The Flamingos were partly managed by Ferd Sr., Snooks' father, and after a few years when he passed away, Alan Toussaint left and the group officially disbanded. For a time afterward, Snooks performed under the name Little Ray Charles with a small R&B group backing, as many people told him that his sultry and soulful voice resembled Charles in addition to his slight physical resemblance and also the fact that he was blind. He was also occasionally billed under other names, such as Blind Snooks Eaglin, Ford Eaglin, and Blind Guitar Ferd. When gigs and studio work would slow down, Six performed on the street for tourists, strolling the famous French Quarter in New Orleans. One day in 1958, a folklorist from Louisiana State University named Dr. Harry Oster found 22-year-old Snooks there, and sensing a unique talent, as most folklorists do, Oster and Snooks began to work together, and recorded three albums worth of solo traditional country blues numbers, titled New Orleans Street Singer, and released on Folkways Records. Though these recordings drew some attention to Snooks, he wasn't interested in the slightest at being cornered as a country blues street musician, when he was more interested in playing everything from pre-war blues, standards, and spirituals to the R&B hits of the late 40s and 50s. In 1960, Snooks signed with the locally based Imperial Records, working directly with writer and producer Dave Bartholomew for seven sessions, recording 26 tracks, half of which were written by Dave. Snooks was already familiar with what Dave wrote for Fats Domino, Smiley Lewis, Earl King, and others, so he slid into the tunes with ease. His voice was maturing, and they attempted to capture a soulful Ray Charles feel to some of the songs, adding celebrated pianist James Booker and a horn section to widen the scope of the sound. Many of the songs from this period stayed in Snooks' repertoire throughout his career, and nine of the tracks gave him some recognition nationwide, successfully distancing him from being strictly associated with the country blues. Down yonder, down on the phone, down yonder. After working with Dave Bartholomew, it would be 11 years before Snooks recorded a solo album again. He played guitar in a group led by legendary pianist and singer Professor Longhair, put together by Quint Davis, who produced the annual New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival that Snooks had been performing at for years. They cut 32 demos, which caught the ear of Atlantic Records and Hall of Fame producers Jerry Wexler and Albert Grossman, who invited the group to Woodstock, New York. Once there, however, Snooks wasn't comfortable and said that the sound of falling snow on the rooftop was keeping him awake at night, and afterwards, the sessions didn't amount to anything. Those recordings were lost until 1987, unearthed by Rounder Records as Professor Longhair's House Party New Orleans style, The Lost Sessions, 1971-72. to Though he wasn't garnering national acclaim through his solo or other projects, Snooks was a local legend in the Big Easy, and he always had a place to play. He could pick up any tune quickly, make up songs on the spot, and would frequently take requests from the audience, many of which his backing band hadn't played with him before. He also recorded with the Wild Magnolias, a Mardi Gras Indian group who specialized in a mixture of New Orleans traditional music, funk, local Indian percussion, and chants. The 1974 record was the first broad commercial exposure of New Orleans' unique Mardi Gras Indian culture to the rest of the world. 
Snooks continued to perform at the annual Jazz Fest and around the clubs of New Orleans throughout the 70s, but his profile stayed low until the mid-1980s, when Blacktop Records convinced Snooks to return to the studio. His re-emergence brought him to a whole new audience of fans who never had the opportunity to see him perform live, which is where he shined best. His voice had gotten better with age, richer and more expressive, with an uncanny ability to adapt and capture the essence of any song that he sang, while still leaving his signature on it. Keyboardist and producer Ron Levy, who accompanied Snooks in the late 80s, said, Playing live with Snooks is something else. He'll just all of a sudden start playing some Hendrix stuff, perfectly, with the exact same tone. Most people tell you the key, the name of the song, or they'll count the song off. He'll just say, ready, go. But he never loses you, as crazy as that sounds. New Orleans bassist George Porter Jr., a regular partner of Snooks on stage and in the studio over the last few decades of his life, said, it's ears up playing with Snooks. If you follow me, you can't go wrong, he'll tell you. But you have to have a certain knowledge of intervals to know what he's playing. A lot of those songs I knew, but there are some songs that he'd pull out sometimes that would throw me for a loop. Has anyone figured out Snooks Eaglin's guitar style? If they have, they ain't talking about it. His personal life is perhaps just as mysterious as trying to understand his flailing fingers. He rarely agreed to do interviews, and even when agreed, he would sometimes back out of them at the last minute. As a devout Seventh-day Adventist, Snooks didn't perform between dusk on Friday through dusk on Saturday, and also honored any and all religious holidays, which left a lot of days in the year that he wasn't playing. George Porter Jr. said that Snooks told him out of the blue one year that his Jazz Fest appearance backing Snooks would be his last which Porter was clueless about. He's an interesting character outside the fact that he's an excellent musician, said Porter. He's not a very trusting person. I guess having the disadvantage of not being able to see, it's like things that go wrong around him are multiplied because someone else has to deal with them. I got to lay down this old night. Snooks fell ill in the fall of 1993 and reportedly decided that he wouldn't leave his house until the following summer, though he resurfaced in the spring and announced that he was performing at the 1994 New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Later in the 90s, he released a few live albums from performances in Japan, one titled Soul Train from Nolens, Live at the Park Tower Blues Festival, and another called Live in Japan. His final studio album, The Way It Is, released in 2002, and afterward, Snooks' health slipped into decline, and he was gigging less often. In 2008, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and was hospitalized for treatment. The following year, Snooks was scheduled to make a comeback appearance at the Jazz and Heritage Festival in the spring, but he wouldn't make it there, as he suffered a fatal heart attack on February 18, 2009, and passed away at the age of 72. Though his career was overshadowed by more well-known New Orleans music legends such as Fats Domino, 
Alan Toussaint, Dr. John, and Louis Armstrong, Snooks Eaglin played with virtually every major music talent in the city, both as a sideman and as a bandleader, and achieved a respect that most musicians only dream of among their peers. His unique and masterful guitar techniques allowed him to take on an incredibly wide range of music, including blues, R&B, gospel, funk, flamenco, jazz, folk, and pop, all made in his own likeness. He played with a certain finger style that was highly unusual, said Alan Toussaint. He was unlimited on the guitar. There was nothing he couldn't do. It was extraordinary. We're going to sock it to you, y'all. I like to do one from the first LP I did for Blacktop. It's written by Percy Mayfield. It's called Baby Please. Baby Please. Baby Please come back to me. Over his 60 year career, Snooks Eaglin was a master at interpreting other people's songs, as well as traditional material passed down through America's musical canon. I don't have original material, he told the Los Angeles Times in 1987. Other people's stuff sounds better. When you make something up of your own, you've got to be figuring out what you're going to put in and all that. I just take some old junk and put it together. Arguably recognized as the Crescent City's most prominent blues and R&B guitarist, Snooks' repertoire included around 2,500 songs, and his ability to play back virtually anything he heard earned him the nickname, The Human Jukebox. His guitar playing led him to be sought out by renowned musicians, including Paul McCartney, Robert Plant, Eric Clapton, and Bonnie Raitt. Here's a version of one of the most versatile standards I know, St. James Infirmary, directly inspired by Snooks's take from 1959, first recorded in 1927 under the name Gambler's Blues. This recording is from my new record, releasing November 2nd, Folk Songs for Old Time's Sake. I went down to St. James Infirmary To see if my baby was there She was stretched out on a long white table So sweet, so cold, so fair Let him go, let him go, God bless her Wherever she may be she done looked this whole wide world over She'll never find another man like me When I die you can bury me in Frisco You can buy me that $20 hat Put a $20 gold piece in my pocket Just let the fellas know I died standing up Oh, now let her go, let her go, God bless her Where she may be She done look this whole wide world over Find another man like me I went down to St. James Infirmary See if my baby was there 
she was stretched out on a long white table. She was so sweet, so cold, yeah, and so Season two is finally here, and we're just beginning to pull back the veil on more music history, which also means there is a lot of work to be done. Would you be willing to help this independent program with a monthly donation of at least $5? I know it's a lot to ask when it's currently free, and we will never have a paywall, but your help is vital to moving this project onward and upward. Please consider visiting patreon.com slash American Songcatcher to support. That's patreon.com slash American Songcatcher. You're listening to American Songcatcher. I want a little sugar in my bowl. In the resort town of Tryon, North Carolina, Eunice Kathleen Wayman, better known as Nina Simone, was born on February 21st, 1933. As described in her autobiography, I Put a Spell on You, Nina found Tryon to be uncommon compared to typical southern towns, because blacks and whites lived together in different circles around the small city. Her mother was a Methodist minister, and her father had been an entertainer before moving the family to Tryon, where he owned a barber shop and a dry cleaning business. At just three years old, she began playing piano by ear, showing on a promise that her parents couldn't ignore the potential of her God-given talent. Despite living through the final grips of the Great Depression that undoubtedly put a strain on their finances, Nina's parents went out of their way to provide opportunities for her to develop musically. Take me to the Take me to the Raised in the church, Nina's parents taught her how to work hard and carry oneself with dignity. At six years old, Nina would accompany her mother's sermons and the choir during church services. After one particular service at the Tryon Theater, two women approached her mother. Although Nina could play virtually anything by ear, they both insisted that she take formal piano lessons. One of the women happened to be a piano teacher who had recently moved to town, Mrs. Muriel Mazinovich. Miss Mazzy, as she was called, began working with Nina over the next four years. She came up with an idea that would prove vital to Nina's future and organized the Eunice Women Fund. This account was funded by family, friends, and Tryon residents, including a white couple in town, who all envisioned that it would allow Nina to become the first black American classical pianist. Nina later gave credit to Miss Mazzy for teaching her to understand Bach, and in turn, she gave credit to Bach for dedicating her life to music. In 1943, at age 11, a concert at the Tryon Library was organized to thank the local community for supporting Nina's fund. It was her debut recital. At the time, however, the Jim Crow segregated South was still at the helm, and before the concert even began, Nina's parents were forced to give up their front row seats for white audience members. She flat out refused to play until her parents were given their seats back, foreshadowing an activist mindset that would blossom two decades later. After a few years, the fund grew large enough to support advanced education, and Nina enrolled at an all-girls boarding school in Asheville, North Carolina, where she graduated valedictorian of her class in 1950. 
The community also raised enough money for a one-year scholarship to study at the prestigious Juilliard School of Music in New York, and she had plans to attend the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia afterwards. In preparation, her family moved to the city of brotherly love, but were soon dealt a devastating blow when Nina failed her recital entrance performance, essentially denying her future in classical music. Certain that the rejection was strictly based on race, Nina sought a different direction. Lilac wine I feel unsteady Nina took on a few odd jobs and found work giving piano lessons at $2.50 an hour. She began learning American standards, jazz, and blues, soon realizing that giving performances in public was better pay. She wound up getting a nightly slot at the Midtown Bar and Grill in Atlantic City and soon was told by the owner that they expected her to sing if she wanted to keep the gig. Having spent so many years training to be a classical pianist, Nina never had to be or wanted to be a singer. But she needed the job, so she sang. To fly under the radar of her parents, who would not approve of either the types of music she was playing or the venue, as well as to disguise herself from uptight classical people that she used to accompany, she donned a stage name for the first time. She combined a nickname from a childhood boyfriend who called her Nina, and Simone came from French actress Simone Signoret, whom she admired in the 1952 film Casque d'Or. And so, in an Atlantic City bar and grill in June of 1954, Nina Simone was born. By 1957, Nina graduated to a better gig inside the Queen Mary room of the Rittenhouse Hotel at $100 a week, which eventually increased to $175. That same year, her first big break came. A bootleg copy made during a live performance in New Hope, Pennsylvania, was circulated and fell into the hands of a producer at the jazz label Bethlehem Records. She was offered a record deal, though Nina refused to be told what songs to play or record, starting her notoriously stubborn relationship with the music industry. An agreement was made, though it was short-sighted. Nina had signed away the rights to all her Bethlehem recordings in exchange for $3,000, which would be nearly $30,000 in today's money. She would miss out on a fortune in the years following her debut album, Little Girl Blue, recorded in one 14-hour session and released in 1959. It featured Plain Gold Ring, title track Little Girl Blue, as well as her own version of I Loves You Porky from the musical Porgy and Bess, which became her first top 20 pop hit. It was so popular that DJs would play it several times in a row, and Nina's star rose almost overnight. Porgy, don't let him take me. A few years earlier, Nina met a beatnik poet named Don Ross, who worked at a fairground in Atlantic City. Nina recalled later in life that he was at the bar, the Midtown, every night, and I was lonely and drinking milk. Nina's family saw him as an aimless drifter, leeching onto her talents, but they married anyway in 1958. Their concerns became warranted to Nina quickly afterwards, and the two separated after less than a year and signed divorce papers in 1960. She signed with Coptics Records, a much larger label than Bethlehem, and despite the massive success from her first record, Nina was indifferent to the fame and still saw herself as a concert pianist, releasing popular music to make ends meet and pay for her private classical lessons. Despite the indifference, Nina caught a prolific pace after her breakthrough debut, 
releasing nine studio albums and seven live albums between 1959 and 1970 that included performances at Newport Jazz Festival and an early dream of hers, Carnegie Hall. Nina's work covering other artists and traditional songs started in the early 60s, several of which she is credited for bringing into the public eye, such as her renditions of traditional blues tunes like Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair and Trouble in Mind, her take on scrapper Blackwell's Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out, a blistering version of Screamin' Jay Hawkins's I Put a Spell on You, and an ode to Bessie Smith's I Want a Little Sugar in My Bowl. In 1960, Nina penned a song to honor her friend and playwright of A Raisin in the Sun, Lorraine Hansberry, the first black woman to have a play performed on Broadway. And the song was called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. To be young, gifted, and black. I think what you're trying to ask is, uh, why am I so insistent upon giving out to them that blackness, that black power, that black pushing them to identify with uh, 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 black culture. I think that's what you're asking. I have no choice over it in the first place. To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world, black people. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi gone down. By 1963, America had hit a boiling point racially and Nina began making her activism and views on the widespread injustice clear in her music. After the murder of civil rights leader Medgar Evers and the Birmingham church bombings three months later that killed four young black girls, Nina wrote Mississippi Goddamn. It did surprisingly well in the charts, considering that it was immediately banned in several southern states, and radio stations nationwide returned promotional copies they'd been sent broken in half. She became known as a singer of the Black Revolution, taking part in marches, speaking and performing at civil rights rallies, and standing next to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She also collaborated with friends Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, and Lorraine Hansberry to financially support the movement, and recorded more protest songs, including Old Jim Crow, Backlash Blues, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, and Four Women. After the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, Nina's bassist Greg Taylor wrote Why the King of Love is Dead, and they performed it three days later, before recording it later that year. He was dreaming of the day Peace would come to earth to stay In the late 60s, Nina's popularity grew wider as she began releasing a string of rearranged folk, gospel, and popular music albums, starting with To Love Somebody. Her selections featured substantially different takes on songs by Leonard Cohen, the Bee Gees, Pete Seeger, and several songs by Bob Dylan. Next was Here Comes the Sun in 1971, with another Dylan tune, Just Like a Woman, George Harrison's Here Comes the Sun, Jerry Jeff Walker's Mr. Bojangles, and a Frank Sinatra hit from two years earlier, My Way. And more, much more than this. By the early 70s, Nina had become disillusioned by many things. The American music scene, the thick veil of racism, Nixon and the White House, and the country's deeply divided politics, as well as her own personal life. In 1970, she flew to Barbados, expecting her manager and husband, Andrew Stroud, to inform her of performance opportunities. It's unclear what the motive was, but Nina left her wedding ring behind. 
Either she was leaving him or just leaving the country, but he took her sudden absence as a sign that she wanted a divorce. When Nina returned to the United States, there was a warrant out for her arrest because of unpaid taxes, which she had refused to pay as a protest of the Vietnam War. So she fled back to Barbados to avoid prosecution and never resided in the U.S. again, only returning for shows here and there. She lived in Barbados for quite some time and had an affair with then-Prime Minister Errol Barrow until one of her close friends persuaded her to move to Liberia in West Africa, where she stayed for the next three years. Nina's final work with RCA was an appropriately titled album, It Is Finished, in 1974, which started a four-year hiatus from recording. In 1978, Nina was persuaded to get back in the studio by CTI Records owner Creed Taylor, best known for his work with Brazilian bossa nova greats like Jao and Astro Gilberto. Recorded at a historic barn in Belgium, the sessions were tense, as Taylor insisted on a reggae sound, leaving Nina to ask, what is this corny stuff? Though a few tracks had reggae elements, overall the album, titled Baltimore, was eclectic, ranging from spirituals to stripped-down piano vocals to a cover of Hall & Oates' classic, Rich Girl. The result didn't achieve commercial success, though it was fairly well-received by critics. She later said, The material was not my personal choice, and I had no say whatsoever in the selection of the songs. It would be another four years before Nina decided to record again. But on your face is a different story. Clean up your rap, your story's getting dusty. Wash out your mouth, your lies are getting rusty. After landing in Paris in the early 80s, Nina recorded an artistic portrait of her tumultuous life and a culmination of her frustrations with the music business with the album Fodder on My Wings. She drifted around until picking up a regular gig at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London, where she recorded live at Ronnie Scott's in 1984 released three years later. She jumped back to L.A. for 1985's Nina's Back, a poignant soundscape of the 80s, then moved back to Paris, where she performed regularly for a small fee at a jazz club called Eau Trois Maillets. Critics said that Nina's performances there were at times brilliant, though occasionally she would shut down creatively after the first 15 minutes. She was often too drunk to sing or play the piano with fervor and would also scold inattentive audiences. It got to the point that her manager, band members, and a few close friends decided to have an intervention. Throughout Nina's career, despite her efforts for artistic control, she was taken advantage of financially. Perhaps the most prominent example was in 1987, when her rendition of a jazz standard called My Baby Just Cares For Me, a song that she first recorded 30 years earlier, exploded after being used for a Chanel No. 5 perfume commercial in the United Kingdom. That led to the song being re-released, and it quickly became a top 10 hit in Britain the same year. Though she was exposed to a new audience and had a career renaissance, Nina was too outraged to enjoy the popularity. She didn't receive any royalties, and later said of the negotiations, they went behind my back and stole from each other like I was a slave. They took me and sold me from one company to another because they couldn't deal with me openly. I put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. In 1988, Nita moved to the Netherlands an idea conceived by peers as a chance for her to relax and recoup. 
and hired a daily caretaker. She'd been known for her short temper, outbursts, and aggressive behavior for some time, but it was there that she was officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and she was prescribed antidepressants. Slowly and steadily on medication and rest, things got better, and after a long legal battle, Nina was able to get a small settlement from the Chanel commercial ordeal. Her autobiography, I Put a Spell on You, was published in 1991, and two years later, she put down roots in southern France, where she called home for the rest of her life. Also in 1993, her final album, A Single Woman, was released, with critics noting, Simone speaks with bleak honesty to many people who value such qualities above sham professionalism or artifice. I live alone That hasn't always been easy to do Following her last album, Nina toured periodically, still filling concert halls whenever she performed. In 1999, she played the Guinness Blues Festival in Dublin, Ireland, and her daughter, Lisa Simone Kelly, an actress, composer, and singer in her own right, joined her on stage for a few songs. In the late stages of Nina's life, due to the CD revolution and the growing use of the internet, she was a global bestseller, selling over one million CDs in the last decade of her life. In the early 2000s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. After battling for years, Nina Simone passed away in her sleep at her home in France on April 21, 2003, at age 70, her ashes scattered in Africa. Two days before her death, she was told that she was being awarded an honorary degree by Philadelphia's Curtis Institute of Music, who decades earlier had denied her future in classical music. When everything goes wrong, you see some bad. But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Nina was dubbed the High Priestess of Soul, titled after her 1967 album, though she hated the nickname and didn't take kindly to being labeled a jazz singer. She later wrote in her autobiography, If I had to be called something, it should have been a folk singer, because there was more folk and blues than jazz in my playing. Across the board, Nina was in a tug of war with the music business, butting heads with nearly every manager and record label that she worked with over creative control and royalties, and constantly at odds with people needing to categorize her musical style. Her turbulent career was also fueled by mental health issues, which led to onstage tantrums and abruptly canceling concerts. Her ex-husband and manager, Andrew Stroud, was verbally and physically abusive, beating her on more than one occasion, in addition to unimaginable accounts not suitable for this program. Nina's daughter, Lisa, said that her mother was also physically and mentally abusive, and it became so unbearable that Lisa was once suicidal. In 1985, Nina fired a gun at a record company executive, accusing him of stealing royalties from her. Nina said that she tried to kill him, but missed. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I'll tell you what freedom is to me, Nina Simone once said. No fear. Throughout her four-decade career, Nina Simone's musical genius drew from a deep well of influences, from classical to gospel, jazz, blues soul, pop, and folk, defying definitions and flipping standard arrangements on their heads. In recent years, her significance has been magnified by two documentaries chronicling her life, both released in 2015, The Amazing Nina Simone and the Oscar-nominated documentary executive produced by her daughter Lisa, titled What Happened, Miss Simone. Nina was a formidable figure, 
one of the most influential recording artists of the 20th century, inspiring the likes of Aretha Franklin, Elton John, Joni Mitchell, Madonna, David Bowie, Janis Joplin, Cat Stevens, and many, many more. Her childhood home was declared a national treasure by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and she's been inducted into the North Carolina Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as well as the Grammy Hall of Fame. Here's a rendition of a Scottish folk song turned traditional African-American spiritual, reimagined by Nina and recorded in 1965, called Sinner Man. Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Oh, Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Oh, Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? All along the day, when I run to the rock, please hide me, I'll run to the rock. Please hide me, I'll run to the rock. Please hide me, Lord, all along the day. But the rock cried out, I can't hide you, the rock cried out, I can't hide you, the rock cried out, I can't hide you, guy, all along the day. I said, rock, what's the matter with you, rock? Don't you see that I need you, rock? To the river, I was bleeding. I run to the sea. I was bleeding. I run to the sea. I was bleeding all along the day. So I cried, power, power. You're listening to American Songcatcher. In the unassuming township of Muir, Michigan, amongst the backwoods and the lakes, William Apostle, better known as Billy Strings, was born on October 3rd, 1992. By the time he turned four, his father and acclaimed musician Terry Barber handed Billy a guitar and taught him his first chords. In their small trailer home, Barber introduced his son to the music of Doc Watson, John Hartford, Ralph Stanley, and other titans of folk, bluegrass, and country music, with anything and everything in between. It was only a matter of time before the two were playing together, with Billy remembering that my dad would play all the fancy licks, and I just played rhythm. I could almost hear the crickets in a sleepy cotton field. And he Billy's first Eureka moment came at the age of six, 
when he and his father were playing Doc Watson's rendition of Beaumont Rag in the back room of their abode with a friend. The old fiddle tune was as intricate an arrangement as anything else in Doc's prolific catalog, and Billy became frustrated after making several mistakes on rhythm duties. He decided then and there not to play, but to listen. He closed his eyes to best hear what his father was playing. The melody came to him instead of the other way around, and as he tells it today, Billy nailed it the next time. That moment and many others to come, with Billy and his dad sitting in their underwear, learning these old songs, would prove extremely formative for his future. Years later, he remembered how his father just leaned over and squeezed my little hand, and that moment has pushed me to this day. of those early years jamming in that small trailer with his father, he was christened as Little Billy Strings for the very first time by his beloved Aunt Mondi, who was floored by his prodigious talent on several stringed instruments. She left a massive impression on Billy with her infectious love of family, life, and music. The many nights that Billy and his friends and family would play into the early hours for her would become legendary. When Aunt Mondi became sick and was on her deathbed, Billy surprised her with a visit. She leapt out of bed and demanded that the guitars be unpacked and played in her living room. Even though she was sick, Aunt Mondi couldn't escape indulging in the copious amounts of weed and alcohol being circulated amongst the musicians and onlookers at the impromptu jam. She would pass away just a few weeks after that night, with those present unaware of the befitting send-off for Billy's beloved relative. It was around this time that Billy was beginning to venture out to the local music spots and play at open mic nights. In his late aunt's honor, William Apostle approached the sign-up board just a few days after her passing and scribbled the name Billy Strings. An early teenager at this point, Billy was expressing his love for rock and metal, namely the silky guitar stylings of Johnny Winter and the soundscapes of Black Sabbath and Pink Floyd that would have as much of an impact on him as the bluegrass and folk tunes that he'd come back to years later. Speaking to a Boston radio station, Billy distinctly remembers enveloping himself within the oral landscape of Dark Side of the Moon, which, as he remembers it, was like using his imagination to watch a movie. The most preeminent act within Billy's adolescence, however, proved to be Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead which no doubt has influenced his ability to stretch and bend songs with emotional tidal waves and lulls during live performances today. He took a big step towards this in 2012, while living in his home away from home, Traverse City, Michigan, when he was approached by local mandolin legend Don Julin. Don was impressed when he saw Billy perform an open mic at the city's premier venue, The Hayloft, and offered him his first paying gig, kicking off a musical education and relationship that would last several years. Not long after, a friend captured Billy on camera, conceiving of a song which perfectly amalgamated his eclectic influences called Dust in a Baggie, a comically tragic song about addiction, which would go on to become one of his most beloved tracks. The song itself is inspired by those he grew up with, who he believed for a time would lead him down a path that he simply did not want to tread. Instead of going deep and abusing substances in those early years like many of his comrades, 
Billy put his energy into unearthing his love for the roots of folk and bluegrass music. With the release of a monster traditional record of 17 tracks in 2014, titled Fiddle Tunes X, Billy was on the tips of people's tongues. After his self-titled EP release in 2016, however, in addition to a big boost from the aforementioned video, recorded in a trailer of Dust in a Baggie from 2012 going viral, Billy Strings leapt up onto the big stage. After moving to Nashville in 2017, he was named one of the best new acts to watch by Rolling Stone and one of six rising stars by Acoustic Guitar Magazine. The acclaim would lead to the release of his highly anticipated full-length, Turmoil and Tinfoil. This introspective collection of songs and stories tied together much of Billy's eclectic mix of influences, with the spectrum of inspiration proving to be as roving and as interesting as the young player himself. I recall a silver morning When your face had turned to gray in 2019, Billy Strings signed to Rounder Records. It was with this label that he released his critically acclaimed and Grammy-winning record, Home, a retrospective work capturing his tumultuous and burgeoning time on Earth, both personally and professionally thus far. The album provides incisive analysis into heartbreak, hope, and contentment, while juxtaposing the loss of two friends to separate heroin overdoses with songs like Guitar Peace. Despite the global pandemic, Billy has figured out ways to continue touring and connecting with his ever-growing audience. From drive-in shows to ticketed live streams to intimate, creative, and playful videos shared on his social media. Playing the Opry, Red Rocks Amphitheater, and a string of shows celebrating 50 years since the Grateful Dead's iconic run at the Capitol Theater, Billy and his band have already left their mark on the Roots music world. Yet what sets him apart is his ability to warp through all manner of genres and emotions through his live performances at such a young age. In his spare time, Billy can often be found fishing around Nashville or in lakes and rivers near stops on tour. At his live shows, you'll find a diverse blend of millennials, deadheads, traditionalists, folkies, and psychedelic rock lovers, all admiring his expansive experimental bluegrass and uncanny representations of traditional tunes. With the newfound confidence from his recent Grammy win and International Bluegrass Music Association's awards for Guitar Player of the Year and New Artist of the Year, his newest release, titled Renewal, has Billy either leading or co-writing 13 of the album's 16 tracks. Several of these are honest looks at deeply personal issues and our tenuous future as a global community. I listened to this album now, and it's emotional, said Billy. I could sit there and tweak it forever, but there's a point where it's like building a house of cards. Yeah, I could add an extra tower on top, but it might collapse. I've always doubted myself, and I still do, but this album makes me think, hey, you're doing all right, kid. You just gotta keep going. This story was written by Jack Browning. Billy is one of the only guitarists out there who can do what Doc Watson did and more and I found a deep respect for him early on with his cover of Doc's Walk On Boy from his record Fiddle Tunes X in 2014. Here's my version of Walk On Boy with some Travis picking. I was born one morning Rain was pouring down 
heard my mammy say to my pappy, let's call him John Henry Brown. What a walk on boy. Walk on down the room. Ain't nobody in this whole wide world that's gonna help you carry your load. Hold on. My mammy and pappy, just about the age of ten, got me a job working on the levee, toting water for the hardworking man. Would walk on, boy? Walk on down the room. Ain't nobody in this whole wide world that's gonna help you carry your load. Walk on, boy. Walk on down that room. Ain't nobody in this whole wide world that's gonna help you carry your load, Lord. Now one day my pappy told me some advice I wanna give to you. Son, find a good woman, be good to her, cause she's gonna be good to you. What a walk on, boy. Walk on down the road. Ain't nobody in this whole wide world that's gonna help you carry your load. Walk on, boy. Walk on down that road. Ain't nobody in this whole wide world that's gonna help you carry your load. If anyone should ever ask you just who's that fellow brown, you can tell him I'm the boy who left the salmon smoking when he hit that old steam drill down. Walk on, boy. Walk on down the road. Ain't nobody in this whole wide world that's gonna help you carry your load. Walk on, boy. Walk on down the road. Ain't nobody in this whole wide world that's gonna help you. People say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 That's all for episode 2 of season 2 And if you or anyone else you know Might be interested in advertising through this program Please email americansongcatcherpodcast at gmail.com That's americansongcatcherpodcast at gmail.com If you enjoyed the St. James Infirmary recording, you can hear all 14 tracks from the new record, Folk Songs for Old Time's Sake, on November 2nd, that's this Tuesday. There's a link in the description where you can find out more. You can also pre-order the record on limited edition vinyl. Today's Shine a Light goes out to the folks at the Music Maker Relief Foundation. You may remember that we've mentioned this nonprofit several times in Season 1. Based in Hillsboro, North Carolina, 
The Music Maker Relief Foundation started in 1994 to help the true pioneers and forgotten heroes of Southern traditional music gain recognition and meet their day-to-day needs. They ensure our nation's hidden musical voices are heard by supporting the artists directly through a grant system and making their music accessible to anyone. They keep roofs over their heads, food on their tables, instruments in their hands, and help them weather crises. Visit musicmaker.org to find out more or find them at the links in the show notes for this episode. Big thanks to the community on Patreon. This would not be possible without you. To Smithsonian Folkways for all their crucial work in preserving the legacy of these artists and these songs, Library of Congress's complete National Recording Registry and Archive of Folk Song, our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album, our outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, edited, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams, with writing and research assistance from Jack Browning and Ryan Eastridge. In the words of Nina Simone, you've got to learn to leave the table when love's no longer being served. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher. To the company store